Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would teach us, that you would sharpen our thinking, that you'd refine our hearts, that you'd grant us the gift of faith, that you, O Lord, would shape and form who we are through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was all calm on the fishing waters, but it wasn't calm for very long. It got so crazy that I wasn't able to snap the pictures that would show you how marvelous it was. It was all calm, and then all of a sudden, I felt something on my rod. Not only did I feel something, but I almost got pulled out of the boat. The Zebco 33 started to bend. I knew this was a big one. And I was worried. I had just bought a brand new lure, $2.49. Am I going to be able to bring in this big fish and save my lure? I'm yelling for help. But again, I'm unable to take a picture because I'm so busy. But no help comes from my partners in the boat, probably sleeping. And so here I am, bringing in what seems to be probably the biggest fish of all with the Zebco 33, no net man to be found. I brought him in. But then I couldn't get the hook out of him because he was so big. I had to let him go with the lure. One lure down, $2.49 left in the river. And my helpers, nowhere to be found. It returned to all calm, but it wasn't all calm for long. Because then again, what happened? The Zebco 33 bends again. This time even bigger. And now I'm thinking, I'm already down two forty-nine. Can this possibly happen again? This time again, no help to be found. They're chewing sunflower seeds and surfing the web on their smartphone. This time, the Zebco 33 could not bring her in because she was so big. I'm down another $2.49. We're now up to $4.98 that I've left in the river. But these fish were huge. I've only got two of my special lures left that I had purchased. All is calm again after lunch. 
And this time it stays calm for a little bit longer. My helpers are beginning to wonder, are we going to catch anything this afternoon? They're beginning to say, maybe we should just head in and sit on the shore. They want to go home and, and drink and eat. But I, was, I said, let's stay strong. Let the sun burn us longer. And not for long did it stay calm. But the Zebco 33 did what? It bent again. And this time even bigger. But I was confident this time. I will not let them win that 249 lure. But again, I could not bring it in. Another 249 lure left in the river. So 498 plus 249 over $7 left in the river. But they weren't just left in the river. They were left with huge fish. Fish that probably would have made Jonah's fish look small. That's how good the fishing trip was. How many of you believe me? There's, there are three lures up in the river. And they were 249. The Zebco 33 did bend. But most of the time it was because of a snag. And what's better than a good fishing story? What a, yes. What happens every time you tell a fishing story? The fish gets bigger. The pole bends more the reeling in gets a little bit more exciting. And soon you know that there might be an element of truth, but there's not much truth at all. Is the Old Testament full of fishing stories? Is three quarters of this book that we gather to study every Sunday morning full of fishing stories? Wild ideas that guys sat around and talked about at campfires and then said, hey, you know what? We should put these things in a book to try and encourage faith. Are we gathered this morning to look at a bunch of fishing stories? From an outside glance, for just a moment, let's be honest, a lot of the stories appear as though they are wild fishing stories. I mean, you have a donkey talking. How many of you have been around a donkey that talks? Vet, any experience? Yes, okay, we've got one thing. How many of you have ever seen someone churned into a pillar of salt? How many of you have ever seen walls crumble when someone's playing the trumpet? Some of you probably wondered if the walls were going to crumble at the middle school concert, but anyhow... There's crazy stuff in this thing we call the Old Testament. Stuff that many people would look at and say, these are wild fish stories. What do these wild fish stories, so-called wild fish stories, have to do with our lives today? Why should we look at this portion of the book when it seems to have nothing to do with us? You and I are busy trying to make a mortgage payment. You and I are busy trying to set our families on a pathway to peace and happiness. You and I are busy trying to make good product at our jobs. What does this 
book of wild fishtails have anything to do with all of that stuff that fills our everyday life? In the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive in to what we call the Old Testament. I'm sure that all of you are familiar in one way or another with the Old Testament. Some of you, it probably goes all the way back to your Sunday school days. In Sunday school, we spend a lot of time telling these wild fish stories. And then maybe some of you are familiar with the Old Testament because you got really excited about God at one point, and you said, I'm going to read through the Bible. And so then you picked up one of those Bible reading plans, and you dug in, and the first month you were just, it was awesome. And then the second month you came to this book called Leviticus. And three days in, you were like, I'm done. What? And the rest of the Old Testament just is history, except for maybe a verse here and there that's popular on a greeting card. The Old Testament can be mind-boggling. Our hope over the next couple of weeks is to unpack the Old Testament and give us an overarching vision so we can understand it. Why? For two main reasons. One, we want to unfold the Old Testament so we can understand the, multi, the primary purpose and plan of God. And when we understand the plan of God, then we can ask ourselves, am I in the middle of God's plan? Am I living out God's purposes for creation? So the Old Testament helps us understand what is God's ultimate plan. But also the Old Testament helps us understand who is God. You see, the beauty of the Old Testament, it's not just crazy stories about crazy, that people that experienced crazy things. It's stories that reveal the character of God. And so by reading the Old Testament, we get a full picture of who God is. We've made the Old Testament and the New Testament into this, good cop, bad cop. And so a lot of people think of the Old Testament, they think of that's the old angry God that killed people and turned people into a pillar of salt. And then people think of the New Testament of, hey, this is when that nice guy Jesus came along and said, your sins are forgiven, do whatever you want. What I was hoping we find in the weeks ahead is this major consistency that the same God is revealed in both. And to get the complete picture of God, we need to look at both. Because in both we find bad cop, good cop. In the New Testament you find bad cop, good cop. And so in the weeks ahead, my hope is that we understand God's overarching plan and we begin to understand who God is. And so we're digging in this morning in Genesis chapter 12, starting basically at the beginning, starting at who would be, with the person that would be described, the father of our faith, Abram, known to most of us as Abraham. Abram, you could say, is the father of the three biggest faith movements in the world today. Every major event that happens in our world today goes back to Abraham in one way or another. The three largest things that are affecting the world overall, number one, Christianity, number two, Judaism, and number three, Islam. Not in that order of effect around the world, but those are the three movements that are having the biggest effect around the world. Religious, political, whatever you want to call it, those are the three biggest factors in the world. All three go right back to Abraham. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more next week so that all of us can have a proper understanding. How does Islam relate with Christianity? 
How does Judaism relate with Christianity? And then how do we interact with people from those things by further and better understanding Islam and Judaism? But they all go back to this man, Abraham. Who is this man, Abraham? We really don't know. We don't have much information at all on Abraham. If you go back to Genesis chapter 11, it basically just gives us Abraham's tree, where he came from. His dad was Terah, T-E-R-A-H, however you pronounce that. His dad was an idol worshiper. Most likely, Abraham maybe was an idol worshiper. We don't know. We have no idea the degree of faith in Abraham's family, but we do know that Abraham's father was an idol worshiper. And then we know that Abram was married to Sarai, and we know that Sarai was unable to have children. And so then Abraham had a nephew named Lot, who ended up traveling with him due to a variety of family circumstances. Outside of that, we don't know a lot about Abraham what his history was, what he did his first 75 years, not much at all. All of a sudden, God went to this person named Abram and said, Abram, you're mine. Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Descendants, so many that none can count. So now when God is saying this to Abraham, all of a sudden things don't begin to compute because what we do know about Abraham doesn't lend itself to a big nation because Abraham doesn't own anything. The promise of many descendants really doesn't work with Abraham because what? Abraham can't have children. So here God comes and makes this promise to Abraham, says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You are going to be the father of his, so many descendants, as many as the stars in the heavens, as many as the sands on the seashores. Yet, here's this man who comes from an idol-worshipping family and can't have children, yet God chooses him. The first thing, if you're taking notes this morning, that we can learn from the life of Abraham is this. God uses the foolish and the misfit to accomplish his purposes. It makes no sense to choose Abram. He's not young enough to have kids in the eyes of the world. He doesn't have a big enough piece of land to build a nation on. And he comes from an idol-worshipping family. Yet God chooses the thing that the world would consider foolish to accomplish his purposes. This is consistent again throughout the whole Bible. So now let's look into the New Testament and see similar consistency. The Apostle Paul. Who is Paul? Paul is a religious zealot leader. He's the leader, basically, of the Pharisee movement. What does he do? He kills Christians. Not personally, he orchestrates it and gives out the orders. Well, who does God choose to build the Christian church? The one who was just killing all of the Christians. God chooses foolishness in the eyes of the world to accomplish his purposes. I think we heard this from Shed and Chris in their message two weeks ago about how God just works through different types of people and through different types of circumstances. It's not dependent upon the things or the people of this world, but upon God's choosing and God's involvement. This morning, no matter where you come from or where you are currently at, you can be used by God. 
Because it's not dependent upon your strength. It's not dependent upon your past. It's dependent upon the one who's calling you. You may be foolish and awkward in the eyes of the world, but that's a perfect instrument in the hands of God. The life of Abram can teach us all something, that God can use any of us and all of us at moment's notice. So when God makes himself known to Abraham, God lays out the master plan. And so to understand the rest of the Old Testament, you have to understand these three verses in Genesis chapter 12. So the first three verses in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, okay, leave your family, da-da-da-da-da, and now I'm going to go here, I'm going to make you into a great nation. This starts something. This starts the process of building what we now call Israel, or it's later referred to in the Old Testament as Israel. And so the rest of the Old Testament is all about this nation that comes from Abraham. It all goes right back to this promise. So the rest of the Old Testament is all about building up this people group, this nation, for what? Look, this is critical. Why is God building up this nation? Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Why does God choose a people group? Because he wants to use that people group to bless all other people groups. Israel was never created to insulate itself from the rest of the world. Israel was created to be a blessing to the rest of the world. So God creates this people group because it's through this people group then that will come the Savior of the world. So if you jump ahead to the New Testament, if you've ever read in Matthew or in other places where they've got the family trees... Sometimes I just skip over that because it gets a little bit boring. But if you dig into a family tree, the whole point of sharing the family tree is to show how Jesus comes all the way through this lineage, this nation of Israel. Because God's plan was to build a people group, and through this people group, God would bless the world. That's God's plan, to build a people group for himself. So now open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. In the New Testament, almost to the end, 1 Peter chapter 2. Each week, I want to show one consistency, at least, between the Old Testament and the New Testament to show that it's really one continuous message, one continuous plan. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You hear similar language there? God speaking in the New Testament, what's he focusing on? He's focusing on what? Building a people group. He's saying to these individual Christians who are not Jewish, he's saying to them, hey, you are now part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's plan did not change. God's got the exact same plan. He started out wanting to build a people group for himself. In the end of the Bible, what do we see? A people group for himself. So this morning, if you want to know if you're part of God's plan, just ask yourself the question, am I living amongst God's people? 
Am I living amongst God's people, or am I an island unto myself? God did not create us to be individual Christians. He saved us and redeemed us to be part of a people group. It's not me, myself, and I. It's we and us. God's plan is to build a people group for himself that what? Declare his excellencies. So he starts with Abraham to build that people group and then it comes to the person of Jesus and then from the person of Jesus it expands to all nations and all peoples. All one people group for God himself. So that's the promise. That's God's promise to Abraham saying, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Here's the crazy part of the story. If you want to know this next week, read Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 22 to get the whole story. In very summary form, here's the story. God makes a promise to Abraham, the land, the nation. Guess what? Abraham never gets to experience the promised plan. Yet, Abraham is asked to live as though the promise is happening. This is the tension of the Christian life. God gives us all a promise, everlasting life in his presence forever, yet that promise is not completely fulfilled yet. And so then there's tension, because you've heard God say in his word, I come that you might have an abundant life. But then what happens? Stuff happens. And it doesn't appear as though we're having an abundant life. But yet, that's the promise of Jesus himself. It's because we're we're living under the promise, but yet we're not in the fulfillment of the promise. Abraham was given a promise, but the promise was not yet fulfilled. And so then, what happens in the meantime? Between the time we're given the promise and the time in which the promise is fulfilled. What happens in the meantime? We're asked to live by faith. In other words, God establishes a biblical word called covenant or relationship with us. And now we're asked, as we wait for the fulfillment of the promise, to live in relationship with God, to live in this covenant. That's why God establishes a covenant with Abraham. And he basically says to Abraham, you will be mine, I will be yours, live with me in relationship. The promise will be fulfilled. So look with me in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, we see this covenant established with Abram. So in Genesis 15, we see a reminder of the promise. Look with me at verse 5 and 6. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So God grabbed Abraham and said, Abraham, look at all the stars. This is the promise. And now look at Abraham's response. Abraham, and Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. What was the covenant based on, the relationship based on between God and Abraham? It was based on faith. This is critical to see. God does not base the covenant on what? Works of the law. God bases the covenant on faith. This could be a whole new concept for a lot of us. Because a lot of us grow up thinking, Old Testament what? We're under the authority of the Ten Commandments. So we believe the Old Covenant was established by what? Moses and the Ten Commandments. 
The old covenant is established by faith. God does not give them the Ten Commandments and say, okay, follow these and then you are my people. God says, you are my people. And he calls them to a life of faith. It's the exact same in the New Testament. The difference is this, what we are trusting. In the Old Covenant, what is Abraham asked to trust? A promise. Saying, trust this promise. It's coming. In the New Testament, what are we asked to trust? Jesus the Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promise. God has been working the exact same way. He's beautifully consistent, calling his people to a life of faith. This is the plan. God wants us to live in relationship with him as we're waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. But as we wait, it's going to be tough. It's going to be real tough. If you're taking notes Here's another example lesson to write down from Abraham. As we wait for the promised fulfillment, notice that being a friend of God does not give you an escape hatch from the problems of this world. Being a friend of God does not give you an escape hatch from the problems of this world. Somebody, you would think, okay, here's Abraham, the man chosen to be the father of the greatest nation that will ever exist. Here's the man who's chosen to be the father of God's people for eternity. You would think that what? This guy's going to have a good life. What does Abraham face? Abraham faces famine. Abraham faces personal struggle and doubt as they try to have children and can't. Abraham faces some morality issues as he makes mistakes himself and then he's got to pay for those mistakes. Just because we're friends with God does not mean we're not going to have problems here in this world. It actually means the exact opposite. Friends with God usually means more problems in this world. That doesn't sell well. You don't see that on any church signs when you're driving around town. Be friends with God this week and experience more problems. That's what happens. Read the Word. Hear the words of Jesus who says, there's going to be persecution coming. We do not have an escape hatch, but we do have someone to go with us through it all. And we have the fulfillment of the promise at the end. And so we're asked to live in the midst of these struggles with this tension by walking by faith. And this faith is completely different than the way some of us think about it. It's not belief in God, it's trusting God. There's a big difference between believing in God and trusting God. A lot of people believe in God. A lot of people believe in a higher being, a higher power, whatever. Okay, even the demons believe in a God, as Jesus says, does nothing for them. The question is, do I trust God? Do I trust what God says that I'm willing to act on what he says? We're called to live in tension and to walk by faith with our eyes on the promised land. Think for a second about Abram. Just imagine with me, if you would, for a second. You've got no kids. You've got no land. And here God is saying, I'm going to give you this great piece of land and the nation I'm going to give you, you're going to have so many descendants, you can't even count them. 
Okay, what are you thinking? Well, how is this going to happen? I'm 75. How am I going to get that number of kids before I'm gone? And how am I going to get that land which is currently owned and inhabited by this group of people called the Canaanites? Well, how is this going to work? Do you think there'd be a little doubt? Yeah, I, I assume there's a little doubt. Look with me in Genesis 15 again. Verse 8. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Okay, Abraham's just honest, saying back to God, Okay, God, how am I going to know that that's mine? Because Abraham's probably having trouble computing all of this in his mind. And again, it's what? Real people dealing with real struggles. Today, have you acknowledged your real struggle to God? God can handle expressing doubts to him. God can handle when we express anger to him. But do we express it? The great father of our faith is willing to say, well, God, not sure this is going to work. Are we willing to express it, to be honest with God, so that God can refine us and refresh us? So Abraham is given this promise, and now the, the challenge for Abraham, if you read on in Genesis 15, Abraham finds out that he's never going to get to experience the promised land. So this just adds a whole new level of complexity. Because it's one thing to know you're going to get something, think you're going to get it, and work towards it, right? It's a whole nother thing to be promised something and to know that you yourself are never going to get it and then continue to work towards it. I had a really hard professor in college thing, and he, this, he graded everything on a curve, and he taught physics and abstract algebra and everything. And Basically, the goal was to get a point on an exam out of 60. You get a point on an exam, you can possibly get a C-. minus. That's how much of a curve he graded on. Okay, basically, here was my thought process. I'm not getting more than a point anyhow. Why am I going to spend any time studying for the exam if I know I can't do well anyhow, right? So what do you do? You don't study at all. I don't know if I ever lifted a book thing, getting ready for an exam, because what? You know you're not going to do well. Makes a lot of sense, actually. Here's Abraham. He knows he's not going to enter the promised land. Yet what does he do? He still works towards the promised land. He still trusts that it's going to happen for his descendants and the great nation is still going to come. That's the level of faith that God desires from us, that we trust him, knowing that we may not experience something here, but we continue to work for it for the ultimate fulfillment of the process, of the promise. So many of us lose sight of the promised land because we chase after little promised lands here and now. Have you ever seen a three-year-old with toys? And not just toys, but junk. We're at the age now where we've got kids that when you go somewhere, they want to buy something from everywhere that you go. And usually it's, it is that. It's a junk thing. So you're on vacation somewhere and they got to have a little thing from vacation and you can't leave that store without it, right? Without a major scene at least. And who wants a major scene? So what do you do? Search the store for the cheapest seashell in the store. 
so you can at least leave with it. Or whatever you're buying. So they make a big deal out of it. You buy it. You what? They're holding on to it in the car. They're so excited. Get back, showing it, and get home. Where does it usually end up? The bottom of a bin. So the other day I come home. What do I have in my daughter's room? I've got this little shelf with nine bins. What's in those nine bins, do you think? All of this stuff that at one point someone was excited about. But where's that excitement now? Nowhere to be found. Because we've moved on to the latest and the greatest. It's the exact same thing that you and I do. We find something that we think is going to give us purpose. What do we do? We chase after it with everything that we got. But then what happens? The next latest and greatest thing comes along. Oh, I'm going to do that instead. Now I'm going to really get into eating green and eating healthy. So I chase after that for a while. It ultimately doesn't bring the fulfillment that I want. So then what? Oh, man, Dr. Phil is fabulous. So what did I do next? I start downloading episodes of Dr. Phil on Netflix, and I just subdue myself and Dr. Dr. Phil hours on hours like, oh, that's not doing it. Well, then what do I do next? Oh, you know what is really going to fix the problem? If I had a motorcycle. So then I go and buy a motorcycle, right? I got to have a motorcycle. So I buy a motorcycle. And guess what? That doesn't bring fulfillment. So then what do I do? Well, you know what? It's kind of uncomfortable. Let's not go with the motorcycle. I need the three-wheeler thing. Have you seen one of those? You got the wheel up front here and the, and the big wheel. It's just a little bit, I'm, I'm going to try that now. So you, you move up to that. And that doesn't work. So what do you do? I need a boat. Then you buy a boat. You're all excited. Hey, I'm going to start fishing all the time. I got weekends free. You buy a boat. What happens? Oh, we only fished twice last year in that big pontoon. You jump from thing to thing to thing, hoping that the next thing brings you fulfillment. Here's the weirdest part of all. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. However, when we make that stuff the promised land, there becomes a serious problem. Because we're looking for something from that stuff which only God can give. Peace and joy. The promised land. Abraham's got to keep his eyes on the promise of the promised land. You and I today, we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. The prize is the promised land for us. The resurrection in the new kingdom where God reigns forever. And when we stray, we've got to be reminded, keep your eyes on the prize. Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection. Do you have your eyes on the prize today? Are you busy chasing after some little promised land that rust will destroy and dust will cover? Abram wasn't really that different than you and I. Faced a variety of life struggles, lived with a bunch of different tensions, chosen by God, given a promise by God, and asked to walk by faith. Now you and I today are faced with the exact same thing. God's given us a promise. Now we've got some tension. Will I walk by faith? Here's the problem for most of us when it comes to faith. We do this little thing here like, oh, I'm kind of believing. Take just a little step. And we think it's a big deal. It's kind of like my daughter eating an ice cream cone. Took her to Black Hills and bought her this ice cream cone. You can kind of see it here a little bit. 
thing. I tried to snap a picture as fast as I could. So you buy an ice cream cone, what happens? Sticks her tongue out and just takes a, I mean, I'm talking the smallest amount of lick possible. I'm thinking, we're going to be here for an hour in this ice cream shop. Eat the cone thing. What do you, what, another little lick. Another, another one. Doesn't even make a dent. Right? Doesn't it? And next, what happens then? The ice cream just starts melting and running everywhere. Because what? Unwilling to dive in. Unwilling to just go after it crazy and take the whole cone. The same is true for you and I today. We, we take this small little thing like, I'm, I'm coming to church on Sunday. That's a big, that's a, I'm living by faith. Okay, that's not living by faith. That's culturally acceptable and sometimes culturally encouraged. God's asking for us to not take a small lick. God's asking for us to take a leap. A leap where we would do what? A leap where we would love our enemies who hate us. That's walking by faith because you don't know what's going to happen in return. God's asking us to take a step of faith and go and talk to a stranger and say, hey, how are you doing today? We don't know what's going to happen because we might be rejected. That's walking by faith. God's asking us to walk by faith today and take a stand and say, this is what's right. And we don't know what's going to happen as a result. We might get fired, but we're walking by faith because I'm trusting God. Are you willing today to take a big lick rather than just let your tongue touch the cone? Abraham took a big lick. Let's be like Abraham. Let's take a big lick and let's walk by faith as we wait for the fulfillment of God's promise. Today, as you go forth, know that you go forth a friend of God, knowing that there's going to be tension, that there's going to be difficulty, but that's where it comes living amongst God's people, God's ultimate plan, so that we go through that difficulty together. Go forth a friend of God, living in that tension by walking by faith. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks to you today that you have called us, that you have given us opportunity to love you and to chase after you. Lord, we ask now that you'd help us in our doubts. Where we are struggling to trust, we pray that you give us that gift of trust. And Lord, we acknowledge the different struggles that we're having, whether it's trying to have kids and can't, whether it's dealing with parents and hospice, whatever it might be, God, we give you those struggles and ask you to give us your peace and your wisdom in the midst of it. And God, I pray this morning now that you would lay before each of us a step of faith in the week ahead, that you'd give us the opportunity to trust you. Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for choosing us. In Jesus' name, amen.